0: Hello, and welcome to The Two View. This is the cutting-edge podcast for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. I'm PA Mike Sharma, and I'm here with my co-host, nurse practitioner Martha Roberts. Hello, Martha. Love your sweater today.
1: Hi, Mike. Look, can you tell, is it a vest, or is it a sweater vest, or is it a two-in-one?
0: Oh, man. Like, from this angle, I think it's a, a one garment, a seamless garment.
1: You are correct, but I do like to have people keep guessing. So <laughs> anyway, we like to take uh, chances here with our recording in our fashion world. I'm ready to jump right into our topics, though. We have a special program today where we hit up what I like to call uh, a little bit of the odds and ends at EM. And Hi. some of these things that we're going to talk about, uh, we do talk about at our courses, but we change them up pretty frequently. So let's let's catch up.
0: Yeah, like we have new STD treatment guidelines,
1: right? Yeah, so we're going to be covering those.
0: <laughs> and then we are going to kick back and relax it a little bit with a brief discussion on muscle relaxants and back pain. Get it? Kick back. Dad joke, coming <laughs> at you early. You know, we know we see back pain every day. So let's really bring you up to speed on what's the latest on using muscle relaxers and how they can be part of your treatment plan or if you should ditch them all together in back pain.
1: Yeah, so we're gonna get into that real deep. Finally, we're gonna talk a a bit about patient satisfaction because yes, it's still part of our job. And is there a way that we can get more folks to fill out those all-important surveys without making our lives that much harder? We'll go over a study that suggests, yes, this is doable. And we'll end with some procedural pearls, my favorite, we are forever injecting Lido into people for something that is such a common practice for all of us. Maybe we should review uh, a few rare but side effects for and guidelines for max dosing.
0: All right, let's do this. Well, they did it again. The CDC released another package of guidelines on STD-transmitted or sexually transmitted infections this summer in July 2021. And, faithful listener, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you guys just did a podcast on this. You're right. The CDC released guidelines in 2020 specifically on the treatment of gonorrheal infection, and they snuck in some significant updated chlamydia treatment guidelines as well. Martha and I covered that on our very first episode on the 2View. A link to that episode will be in our show notes, which you can always find at twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number 2View.Fireside.FM.
1: If you thought those guidelines were a big deal, you're going to have your mind blown by these next ones. These are an update to the CDC's 2015 STI treatment guidelines covering STIs from A to Z, or more like B to T. That's BV to trichomonas and everything in between. No pun intended there either. It's 200 pages of guidelines.
0: Well, you know, technically it's 135 pages. There are 65 pages of references and other stuff. So you could like. Probably bang that out in an hour or two of reading, Martha. You're a pretty fast reader.
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on the time of day. But look, we page through these guidelines so you don't have to. Don't be intimidated, though. Thankfully, the CDC released some great quick reference sources, which we all like to go to in the ER. And there's a wall chart that you're not going to want to just put on a regular piece of paper but and go blind on this. You want to try to read it. There's also a little flip book. Uh, maybe you can print that out and throw it in your backpack or at least... Uh, bookmark it?
0: Yeah, check it out. I have it right here. This morning, I printed it out. I laminated it. I put some binder clips on there and bam, there you go.
1: Where's my copy? you going to send me one?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll put it in the mail.
1: <laughs> well, instead of finishing up the show notes this morning, uh, I'm going to probably be doing some arts and crafts, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think of it as like creating premium content for our youtube channel you know you're really going to want to tune in if you're an audio listener and see the video version so you can see how cool this little flip book is that i made Uh, it looks amazing search for center for medical education on youtube and you can see us there you'll have a link to all these quick reference resources and the full guidelines in our show notes on our website
1: all right so first some general guidelines no test for sexually transmitted infections is perfect and asymptomatic infections are not uncommon for certain infections A test of cure is recommended. Tell all your patients that even if they test negative for whatever you're testing them for in urgent care or ED, they need follow-up. If cost is an issue, the county public health department is a great resource, and so is any other local qualified federal health care center.
0: Yeah, exactly. These FQHCs are great places for folks to get low-cost, no-cost care, and a lot of folks think like, well, I don't have insurance. Where can I go? These places, okay? Well, let's talk collecting the samples with some exceptions we're talking about usually swabbing some sort of bodily orifice and if we're going for the highest sensitivity test that's usually a nucleic acid amplification test or a nat test i think it's very forward thinking of the S- uh, cdc rather to acknowledge that patient collected swabs of the vagina of the rectum are often equivalent in sensitivity and specificity to those collected by a clinician, and that taking these self-collected swabs is often very well accepted by both men and women. Friend of the podcast, Dr. Ken Millen, just had a great episode on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine podcast on this topic. I am often going to that website, his blog for the podcast. I'm printing out very simple text and graphic instructions on how to do a self-collected swab. And I'm giving that to the nurse and the patient. Of course, once I I have to get the patient's consent first if they're okay with this procedure. And if they are, well, then I give them the instructions and they go ahead and do that. And that's worked very well for my busy practice if performing a pelvic exam is either not necessarily indicated or refused by the patient. Sometimes it is. We're going to get to that later on in this segment. A link to that episode is also in the show notes.
1: All right, so lastly, point of care tests are becoming more and more available, especially with how chlamydia treatment has changed. It's no longer a one time treatment. A test done while you wait sounds really attractive to minimize folks getting torn up by doxycycline and also for improving antibiotic stewardship. So keep an eye out for those in the coming years.
0: Well, those are some general guidelines. Now let's talk specific diseases. Let's dive into chlamydia
1: figuratively. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's discuss.
0: Let's dip a toe into chlamydia. How about that? Ah! Uh, That's even worse. I'd rather dive right in. Okay, (laughs) hopefully you're already aware that doxycycline twice a day for seven days is the new first-line treatment recommendation from the CDC. And we've talked before about that in that first episode about how to make this drug, which can be poorly tolerated by patients because of how irritating it is to the GI tract, how to make it more tolerable for patients. Definitely check that out. You need to be counseling patients about this, warning them that it's going to tear them up. Here are some other ideas. Doxy is also available in a delayed release. 200 milligram tablet formulation, which is a once a day dosing for seven days, is as effective as the typical Doxy dosing. More costly but also has a lower frequency of gastrointestinal side effects. So if that's really the, the kicker there, that's an option. Um, Leviquin, levofloxacin is an effective treatment alternative as well for chlamydia, but it's more expensive. And we all should know by now the black box warning that basically says for fluoroquinolones, like basically FDA is like, if there are any other treatment options other than a fluoroquinolone, use that other treatment option. So it's a quite strong recommendation from the FDA if doxy is absolutely not an option for whatever reason they're allergic they can't tolerate it they can't afford the multi-day dosing regimen azithromycin is still a second line treatment option and the guidelines say that it should quote always be available for persons for whom adherence with the multi-day dosing regimen is a concern okay i would personally especially be getting folks to get that follow-up care, if you have to use a Zithro, we know there's a lot of resistance out there. That's the whole reason for the guidelines change. Okay, so I, in my opinion, very good oral and written counseling is a must-do. Hey, you can't take Doxy for X reason. We're giving you a Zithro, but we know that you need to get this follow-up here. How about in pregnancy? Oxycycline is contraindicated in. The second and third trimesters because of the risk of tooth discoloration. Before you jump all over that, I think it's important in the first trimester, if you're going to give it, to ask about any sort of like hyperemesis, gravidarum issues, like doxy's hardy enough when well, you don't have that going on. A Zithro, one gram orally in a single dose is still an option. You heard my warnings about that earlier. Another alternative regimen, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams orally, three times a day for seven days. So you have some options there depending on pregnancy, trimester, and, and other considerations.
1: That was a really good review, Mike. Thanks. Thanks. So let's, transis- let's transition though to trichomonas. Interesting stat, trich is estimated to be the most common non-viral STI worldwide, affecting approximately 3.7 million persons in the United States. More common, you might think, and associated with a lot more problems, preterm birth, infants small for gestational age, premature rupture of membranes, a doubling of the risk of cervical cancer, and a ton of other stuff. TRIC is not just annoying. In many facilities, TRIC testing is done with a wet prep or a wet mount. You swab the area, rush it over to the lab, and sometimes it's literally looking for these parasites moving around under a microscope, which I have seen, because at Davis, we still use the microscope to look at all our own wet preps. Understand? Yeah, understandably, this has a pretty poor sensitivity, though, so cost makes that a good option, but there are NAT rapid testing and culture tests available, so that's something to consider if you think this could be causing symptoms and they were wet prep negative for trick. The recommendation treatment for Trichomonas has changed for women. Now the CDC recommends metronidazole five hundred milligrams by mouth twice a day for seven days. Right, so that's Flagyl five hundred milligrams by mouth twice a day for seven days. It's used. It used to be that you give a dose of Metro or Flagyl one time, but the guidelines cite a study that demonstrated this new regimen reduced the proportion of women retesting positive at a one-month test of cure visit by half, compared with women who received the 2-gram single dose. So that's huge. No published randomized trial are available that compare these doses among men. The 2-gram single dose of metronidazole or a is still recommended for men. An alternative treatment for both men and women is... Oh, Mike. You always give me the hardest things to pronounce. You got this.
0: I know you got this.
1: Tinidazole. Yes. Two grams by mouth, one time. A little more costly, yes. But GI side effects are not as bad, and this is a one-time treatment.
0: Okay. Well, now let's talk about pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID. The board answer for diagnosing PID is that cervical motion tenderness. But in real life, acute PID is difficult to diagnose. There's a lot of variety in symptoms. It can be very subtle, and women can even be asymptomatic. Because of how difficult this can be to catch and because of how it can really negatively affect the reproductive health of women, the CDC is recommending a low threshold for clinically diagnosing PID. If a woman is at risk for STIs, if they are experiencing pelvic or a lower abdominal pain, if you're stumped and can't figure out any other reason for that discomfort, and especially if one or more of the following is present on the pelvic exam, cervical motion tenderness, of course. Uterine tenderness with the bimanual exam or adnexal tenderness, consider treating for PID. Now, let's say you're doing the pelvic exam. The majority of women with PID have either some sort of mucopurulent cervical discharge or evidence of the WBCs on the wet prep. If the cervical discharge seems normal and there's no WBCs on the wet prep, the guidelines state that, quote, a PID diagnosis is unlikely. And alternative causes of pain should be considered. So look for that discharge. Look for the WBCs on the wet prep. There are other diagnostic options available. We can do an ultrasound, which you know may or may not show inflammatory changes, and there are even more invasive options like laparoscopy or endometrial biopsy to look for inflammation that an OB can pursue at follow-up. Treatment here is going to be a very broad structure to cover a lot of stuff. Option one is your standby. You probably are aware of already IM or IV ceftriaxone, depending on how you roll in your ED, IV or IM, with uh, two weeks, 14 days of doxycycline and metronidazole twice a day. You're giving 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone or an entire gram if the patient is greater than or equal to 150 kilograms in body weight. Option two, I am cefoxitin plus probenicid, one gram orally. That's there in the ED with two weeks of doxy and metro twice a day. Option three is any other parenteral third-generation cephalosporin like, you know, cefoxitin, ceftazoxin, and these two weeks of doxy and metro that you heard with the other recommendations.
1: All right, let's end by talking about herpes simplex virus or HSV. The NAT test is the most sensitive test here, but sensitivity rates will still vary from 90 to 100%. Like we talked about at the top of the segment, no test is perfect. Sometimes patients aren't shedding virus, the virus at all. So no virus, NAT test will be negative. There are other tests that can be done, like serologic testing to look for antibodies to HSV. These antibodies show up during the first weeks after infection and stick around indefinitely, unlike viral shedding that can come and go. If the NAT test is negative and you're still thinking HSV, the guideline recommends a two-step serologic test for antibodies to be done 12 weeks after the time of the suspected first infection.
0: Okay. Well, there are other changes to the guidelines with regards to gonorrhea in neonates and children, in patients presenting with proctitis and epididymitis suspected from gonorrhea, and also updated testing recommendations for other infections and updated HPV vaccination recommendations. Please refer to the show notes for the complete CDC guidelines. And again, those can be found at our website, toview.fireside.fm.
1: That's a great review. I, You know, it's always helpful to have that kind of stuff. Uh, in your back pocket and just kind of review it because not only did some things change and get updated, but, uh, you know, I can't remember a day that that goes by that I haven't seen one of these things. I mean, Yeah, really. I mean,
0: we, we changed how to treat every single one of the big three there. And PID, I guess, is more of a change in how you diagnose it. So this is huge. Like any sort of genital urinary thing, big changes there.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, let's ease into segment two, all right? Ease into it. We're going to talk oh, about mus- muscle relaxants for back pain. First, my own experience. Okay. I had back pain once or twice in my life. Sure. I took 10 milligrams of Flexerol and I felt like a puddle. It was not euphoric or anything. It was just kind of like I was a mush pile. My brain was working just fine, which we all know means I was still on go mode and yet I couldn't move my body. So yeah, these things work to relax you. But I didn't find it really helpful to sleep because I was still thinking about everything I had to do.
0: That's actually kind of terrifying. Uh, well, <laughs> Dr. Sergey Motov, the king of pain and emergency medicine, has covered this topic before and even mentioned it on our faculty forum we did last year at the Center for Medical Education. He did an amazing lecture, and then we really had a fun roundtable discussion. You and me, Martha, Ken Milne was there, Dr. Rick Yukata, Rick Pescator, and of course, Sergei Motov. If you are a junior clinician in emergency medicine or urgent care and wanted to get caught up on how to treat acute pain in 2021, or even if you're a senior clinician who wants to know the latest, this talk, guaranteed, will change your practice. I had even listened to Sergey multiple times before that forum, and I still learned some stuff that day. We have a link to that talk on YouTube in our show notes.
1: So let's start by discussing a few types of muscle relaxants or relaxers, dosing regimens, and expectations for the drug overall?
0: OK, well, our popular ones are usually like cyclobenzoprene, which is trade-name Flexural, or methocarbamol, that's trade-name robaxin. Both of these are kind of two most, probably the most common examples of skeletal muscle relaxants, or SMRs. Both drugs work in similar ways through acting on the central nervous system. So not like on the muscles themselves, but on the central nervous system. They are further classified as antispasmodic agents. Cyclobenzaprine and methocarbamol are effective for treating acute, painful, musculoskeletal injuries that cause discomfort and muscle spasms.
1: So just a little history for you. Methocarbamol was released on the market in, about, uh, in the ni- early 1960s, while its exact mechanism of acting is unknown. Methocarbamol is believed to relieve discomfort through its sedative effects, right? So it does not directly affect the muscle contractions. It comes as an injection as well as a pill. And it's usually a dose of 500 to 750 milligrams. Cyclobenzaprine was initially approved by the FDA in the 1970s. And it primarily works on the brainstem and spinal cord in the CNS, which helps reduce motor activity. Cyclobenzaprine is also structurally similar to like a tricyclic antidepressant. What is also interesting is that the cyclobenzaprine's brand name Flexeril has actually been discontinued, by the way. However, it's still available in two other brand names called Amrix, the extended release, and Fexmid, the immediate release. The extended release tablet can be taken once per day, but once you take one of those extended release tablets, be prepared to say (laughs) bye-bye to your day because you're in for the long haul, or no haul at all, actually. So let's remind listeners a little about who can have this drug and the dosing if you want to give it, just like any other drug, you should consider the weight of the patient. Mike, you know you mentioned this earlier with the STD um, treatment guidelines. you you really have to take into consideration how much these patients weigh. I mean it's super important. Let's not forget about that. So um, also, what other drugs are these patients taking? their other polypharmacy. Anything else that makes someone weak or dizzy, of course, If they're pregnant or breastfeeding, caution in renal and liver disease, caution uh, giving this to patients who might be on MAOIs, TCAs, or SSRIs. So all these things you should think about before you give the med. Now one, two doses of this medicine, not going to be a big deal, but long-term prescriptions aren't going to be good. And we'll talk about that in in a moment. Also caution if someone is on opioids or other sedating medications like opioids, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, or any drug that might cause hypotension. Um, And also, remember, this is a short-term drug. It's not a long-term drug. It's more of a rescue drug and should not be used for more than one to two weeks. And even the manufacturers say that. So Hmm. both the drugs that we talk about here require less of a dose, not more over time. Also, the manufacturers say to caution in thyroid disorders and myasthenia gravis, we are typically cautious of these two Illnesses and issues with new medications for a variety of reasons, which actually might be good for our future podcast, by the way. Hmm. But yeah. anyway, let's pop right into talking about how much we take when we pop one of these pills, right? Okay, so Cyclobenzaprine, the immediate-release tablets, five milligrams, um, three times a day. You know, you can up it to ten if you want, uh, and then taper it back. But sometimes people like to just kind of start low, maybe add a little more, and then and then rain it back in. For our lightweight patients, um, you know, you might want to take into consideration starting with the five uh, milligrams. The extended release capsules are 15 milligrams once a day. So the dose might be increased to 30 milligrams once a day, and then you can hone it back down. Methocarbonyl, the initial dose is 1,500 milligrams four times a day. I mean, it seems like a ton, but that's what they suggest. And then a maintenance doses of... uh, thousand milligrams four times daily, 1500 milligrams three times daily, or 750 milligrams every four hours. And again, for our lightweights, 500 milligrams every four hours might just do the trick. But for both drugs, less than two weeks is preferred, and this is super important. What's also super important is, do these drugs work? Who cares about the dose? You take a ton of anything, right? But if it's not gonna work, why even bother? Unless, of course, it's magnesium. And <laughs> right. you all know how I feel about that drug. I love it. So there are even some studies, Mike, get this. There are some studies on magnesium and back pain, which, by the way, is also a segment we don't have time for today. But <laughs> anyways, the bottom line here is both drugs are effective treatments for treating some musculoskeletal pain and muscle spasms. Neither one really stands out to be better but when it comes down to cost it really depends on insurance per usual
0: right <laughs> well okay so let's talk literature martha which i know you and i both like to nerd out a little bit over you mentioned to me that you noticed cyclobenzaprine is one of the most studied muscle relaxants if you go scar literature thus it has more supporting evidence for its effectiveness overall In a systematic review in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management in 2004, it was found that, in general, muscle relaxants are comparable in effectiveness overall, and that review included other muscle relaxants as well, like metaxalone, baclofen, tizanidine, or and even chlorzoxazone. No one really outperformed the other one here.
1: I like to give you all the difficult words too, Mike.
0: I I was like, (laughs) she did this on purpose. Okay, that's all right. I got this. I'll rise to the occasion.
1: Yeah, so interesting study, this one. Uh, We put all of these in our liner notes, by the way, so you can check them out. So looking at another study in a head-to-head trial, Right. Right up against each other. Methacarbonol and cyclobenzaprine, again, reviewed by the Journal of Pain Symptom Management. There was no significant difference in muscle spasms or tenderness. However, patients experienced slightly better improvement in local pain with cyclobenzaprine, 48% versus 40%. And cyclobenzaprine was also found to produce more somnolence or drowsiness, 58% versus
0: 10%. Yeah, that's a big deal. Well, how about combining these muscle relaxants, SMRs, with other drugs? Well, there are very few, if any, uh, I haven't really seen many, that put acetaminophen and the SMRs together, head-to-head or in combination. If you go through a lot of this literature, you find many suggestions to start the SMRs in combination with NSAIDs for pain, not SMRs alone. They are not the first-line choice as a monotherapy. It's a second added bonus or an adjunct for these drugs. Okay. Evidence on combination therapy with NSAIDs is mixed, though. A randomized trial in 197 patients with acute low back pain comparing treatment for one week with aclofenac or aceclofenac, otherwise known as diclofenac. We know that one very well. 100 milligrams twice daily with or without the addition of tizanidine, otherwise known as Xanaflex twice milligrams daily. Uh sorry, 2 milligrams twice daily. There we go. Found improved pain relief and decreased functional impairment with combination therapy. Oh, okay, so a vote in favor of combination therapy. Mm-hmm. However, in other randomized trials, there was no benefit from the addition of a skeletal muscle relaxant to NSAID treatment. Like, man, it's there's no real one clear answer here. It's really mixed.
1: I know, this is tough, but we'll listen to this. Looking at cyclobenzaprine, because there are a few more papers specifically on this drug, as I mentioned, a 2003 system, systematic – you know, I always have trouble with that word sometimes <laughs> – found high-quality evidence that non-benzodiazepine muscle relaxers, such as cyclobenzoprene are more effective than placebo for short-term relief of acute low back pain. A very recent subsequent 2021 – right? Ding, ding, ding – recent mm. meta-analysis in the BMJ – including 49 trials of over 6000 patients also found that non-benzodiazepine muscle relaxants had a small benefit in reducing short-term pain 2 to 3 weeks of use when compared with the control but not a reduction in disability so please note both uh, both analysis Uh, In these papers looked at an increased risk of adverse effects from muscle relaxants, as we have spoken about, because they can be dangerous. Mm. But basically, the big BMJ study showed considerable uncertainty that exists about the clinical efficacy and safety of muscle relaxants overall. Very low. And low-certainty evidence shows that non-benzodiazepine antispasmodics might provide small but not clinically important reductions in pain intensity and might even increase the risk of adverse events in acute low back pain, respectively. Large, high-quality, placebo-controlled trials are urgently needed to resolve uncertainty. Don't we just love when we hear that phrase, Mike?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't like uncertainty in medicine? I love uncertainty.
1: So I'm sure our listeners are like, okay, so what do we do? Do we give the muscle relaxants or not? Like, how do we decide? So I, I'm going to put the the big, BMG, bim, the big BMJ study in our, our liner notes so you can take a look at that. And you can kind of read about some of the issues that they had with bias, um, which I'm not going to get too much into today. But I think this is really interesting, just a reminder to look at the rate of bias in some of these studies when you're reading them. Um, But that'll make our brains explode this morning and it's too early, so I'm going to kind of forgo that for now. But basically, this is what I want to say. From this information in general, I feel like maybe these drugs aren't the right choice for some. And I'm skeptical about how much actual pain relief any of them bring along with their muscle relaxation. With that being said, ask patients and discuss with them, you know, as a potential second line treatment and let them know the side effects. No single one muscle relaxer is really any better than the other. Ask if one has been successful for a patient in the past, and if so, ask what was the dose. And if it was a small dose and they want to try it again, you could consider giving it maybe at a higher dose. Consider taking SMRs only for a few days. You, as the clinician, should prescribe, oh, say, I don't know, five or ten pills and see if maybe that will help the patient. They can be habit-forming, just FYI. And they aren't that expensive, uh, and they might be helpful to some. So overall, nothing lost, but nothing really gained. So,
0: yeah. Sorry. Well, let's talk about that last part, right? You know, uh, I'm I'm very sensitive to money, and and in the sense, <laughs> ask my ask my family. Um, but um, you know, as far as when it comes to patients here, right? As far as cost of medications, right? Generic methocarbamol tablets, usually covered by Medicare, great, and insurance plans. Um, but if that's not in place, you can purchase these tablets at a retail cost of about $31 per prescription. There's lots of different um, discount cards. Single Care, good RX, that can lower them even further to like $8, $5 for a course of 30 pills. That's pretty good. Cyclobenzoprine, a little higher retail cost of $42.99 compared to methocarbamol. Um, But the good news is generic cyclobenzaprine, often covered by Medicare and insurance plans.
1: Yeah, I always like to pop these uh, pills into my little calculator and find out how much it's really going to cost for a patient because they're not going to fill it. And then everybody wasted all of their time, honestly, trying to print out the prescription and asking them if it even works. So I got a lot of this info on cool new drugs. Uh, reviewed by farm mds and that's the single care website it's a lot like good rx helps you find cheaper prescriptions get discount cards their information is reviewed and checked with literature sources that i also liked read and referenced for you all i read like five papers that were referenced in their particular review so i'll put that in the liner notes So I just want to end this segment, Mike, by saying some short words about benzodiazepines and their role in muscle relaxation and back pain, because I think it's important. I actually called Jim. I called Jim Roberts and I asked him, I said, you know, you've been prescribing meds for back pain for, I I didn't say anything insulting like 575 years, but I essentially said, what do you think? Like, look, just screw the literature, Jim. What has worked in your practice? What have patients told you is good for them? And what's interesting is that he said, listen, I really think Valium is a fantastic drug. Diazepine is a great drug. It does a really good job and patients really enjoy it. And I said, well, you know, how do I make the decision about which one to give? And he, of course, said, ask patients what has worked for them in the past and maybe consider, you know, giving a single dose of one in the ER and seeing how it worked for them. So again, that's just a, a little throwback to maybe some just some bedside care that we forget about. But Cyclobenzaprine has actually been compared to Valium and Soma in clinical trials. So in those trials, cyclobenzaprine was similarly effective to these drugs for treating acute low back pain. So that's nothing to sneeze at, but I do strongly recommend not sneezing when you have back pain because it hurts (laughs) like a you-know-what, all right? So remember, Valium- whole different ball game. Using Valium can be even more addictive and sedating than SMRs, right, Mike? We don't want to be giving people new problems. That's like my goal in life is to not give someone a new problem. <laughs> Although there's not much literature on this. Um, I think, of course, more studies would be useful. It can also have a ton of side effects if you're taking Valium, right? You've got an increased risk for respiratory depression when combined with other drugs like opioids, as well as dizziness, confusion, and weakness. But giving, again... 5 to 10 pills at 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams a pop isn't that big a deal. Again, we started this segment with my own experience. I will end with my own experience. I have taken Valium for an MRI. I was very relaxed, right? I was. And then I kind of forgot about my pain and I just didn't care. So there's your single person case study. And also, when you say the word Valium to an anxious patient in pain and the word prescription, your patient satisfaction scores will skyrocket. (laughs) No. Listeners, I'm just kidding. Please don't, please take a joke. These drugs should all be used with caution, okay? Be so, so, so careful and do not give more uh, than just a few because of the reasons we had just described to you.
0: I love the joke. And you, by the way, really nailed the segue into our next segment by mentioning patient satisfaction scores. I read a really interesting article in Emergency Medicine News, EM News, that has led me to change my practice, kind of, because how do you not read an article entitled, How to Improve Patient Satisfaction Scores Without Really Trying? You know, many of us deal with these patient experience, patient satisfaction scores, press gainy, there's different names for it, different euphemisms for it, and it can really cause a great deal of stress in our lives as clinicians. I mean, it's hard enough, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, to diagnose and treat patients, to manage the flow of a high-volume emergency department, and now add this extra pressure. I was trying to get good scores on patient satisfaction surveys. You know, my personal bias is that clinicians change their practice because of how much weight is put on these surveys and not in a way that necessarily benefits patients. I really struggle with how we're supposed to be scientists in medicine and we're tying things like clinician bonuses, hospital reimbursement, sometimes a clinician's employment in a job. To a survey that sometimes less than 2% of patients end up filling out and returning. I mean, come on. I I have to really intentionally manage my mindset to not get really upset about this.
1: Yeah. Some days it's hard not to get upset about anything. You know, sometimes we feel just so powerless. But let's, let's turn this into something very positive, okay? All right. These authors who are three emergency medicine physicians in your neck of the woods, Texas, Mike. Yeah. All right. Start out the article in probably the most diplomatic way possible, and I quote here, Our journey to improving patient satisfaction scores without trying very hard began with the understanding that typical measures of pain satisfaction poorly reflect reality. Right. Let's let that sink in for a minute. So their belief is that the vast majority of patients are satisfied with their emergency department experience. They do they did an interesting look of trying to identify which patients might give a top box or five out of five score. And then they asked the question, could we increase the response rate of the people likely to give us top box scores and raise our patient satisfaction scores?
0: Here's what they ended up doing. If a physician thought that a patient was highly satisfied with their visit, the physician asked the patient if their visit had been excellent. If the patient didn't really answer with a definitive Yes. Then they were asked, well, what could have been done better? And look, that's got its own utility there as far as hearing the patient out and trying to do a little recovery. And they didn't really mention the surveys to those patients. But if the patient answered with a definitive, yes, the care was excellent. The patient briefly talked about how important patient satisfaction surveys were and asked, when you get a survey in the mail, could you complete it and send it in? Then they tracked these patients who gave that definitive yes and were asked to send their surveys in. And this next bit blew my mind. Everyone they tracked who said yes, they would complete a survey. If they completed a survey, 100% of those people gave a top box response. 100%. That's not 98.
1: That's not 99. That's 100%.
0: Doesn't go higher than 100. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: In the end, patients that said they would complete a survey were over two times more likely to actually complete the survey compared to the patients that were not asked to complete a survey. That percentage jumped from 4% to around 9%, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but if we're only getting a few surveys back a month, usually, and you double the number of positive surveys, that could make a big difference since we're talking about such a small denominator anyways.
0: Right. Well... There's more ways to up your odds of getting a good survey. The authors found that the odds of getting a top box score were better right after shift changes and during the business day, you know, like 8 to 12 in the morning here, 8 a.m. to 12 in the morning. Uh, The percentage of top box scores seemed to fall off a bit right before shift change, and wow, you could really speculate about why that could be right before you know the, the the clinicians or the nurses were leaving that had been there all shift, and there's always a little bit of a delay, understandably, when there is kind of that that handoff between clinicians and nurses there, so interesting there. Um, kind of a bummer uh, for all the shift out there, because also those top box scores really dropped off between 12 a.m. and 7 a.m., so, look, I'm, I'm totally, literally, I'm trying this right now. I'm doing this by practice, and not going to lie, it feels a little cheesy asking someone if their care was excellent, but it is a huge opportunity to end the visit on a happy note, not just for the patient, but for you as well. Like, how many times do you get told in a shift that you, Martha, or you, Mike, provided ex- excellent care? Like, you're providing excellent care all the time, but to hear a patient say that you're doing that, that's a real opportunity to improve clinician satisfaction as well. Uh, I'm working my way through a book right now called Compassionomics. It's not a, a you know unheard of book. Probably a lot of folks have read it's it they are listening. Book. Yeah, you yeah. read it before? Okay, yes. I'm, still, I'm still working my way through it. By two physician authors, it's Trezicek and Mazzarelli, and they came to the topic, this topic of like, does better patient satisfaction increase the quality of patient care. They were kind of frankly skeptical, like pessimistic about it, frankly, because we've heard that angle before of higher patient satisfaction, higher patient mortality. There are some studies that suggest that. That's kind of a weird study here. I don't think that really captures the whole argument, but a lot of folks will cite that study here. Well, they came at this, these authors, from kind of that angle, that pessimistic angle. They really applied some science to it and they found that not only does compassionate health care help the patient, it helps the clinician as well. I know a lot of folks out there are struggling in healthcare right now, and yeah. this might be an important way forward when a lot of folks might be looking for a way out.
1: So, you know, I just wanted to take this a couple steps further, Mike, because I think it's super important. Uh, after just working three shifts in a row at Zuckerberg Sanford General, it was a really rough couple of days. Um, and our wait times, you know, they were long. And, and what is important, I found, is that, yeah, it's great when patients give us their satisfaction right away. And sure, you know, telling us that we gave excellent care, always super important. But when another coworker, Or someone that doesn't even do what I do in the ER comes up and says something to me that is so meaningful to me. And maybe one of the takeaways that there's, there could be a couple things you can do today. If you're driving into your shift, here's some things you can do right away. You see someone do something awesome, tell them, you know, if you see someone performing really strong, good work, tell them, tell them they did an excellent job. That stuff is so important, especially right now. And in addition, when it comes to patient satisfaction, you know, I say this time and time again, calling a couple patients back right when you get into your shift takes about five, 10 minutes. Just be like, hey, what's up? How are things going? You know, I'm just calling to see how you are, right? Right. Usually, I can't remember the last time someone said they needed something. If they did, it was something easy I could take care of. And then also, we all know I'm a big component of giving people my email. I know people are wishy-washy about that, but I'll tell you, for the last month, I gave my email out approximately 500 times, one email. You know what that email said? Will you be my primary care provider? (laughs) Did you say no? (laughs) I said, I'm so sorry, but uh, don't come and see me anytime. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. No, I'm just kidding. I did say, uh, you know, certainly we're here in emergencies, but that's not where I practice. So yeah.
0: Well, I I love what you said there, and um, that's another thing I've started to to do in my practice, especially right now. Like I'm trying to check in with my staff a little more personally, and and if I I, I try to make a point of when I leave for the day, or when they're leaving on shift, because often the nurses will leave before me just because the way shift change works out. I want to tell them not just thanks for your help today, or hey, good job, or hard day. I try to remember something specific they did. Hey, thanks for being so fast on that, or wow, you were a really good job with this patient, or they were so scared, you really calmed them down, thank you. I feel like the specificity of, of that comment makes a big difference, because, I mean, we hear all the time, like, hey, good job today, or thanks for your help. It's like, uh, you know, the, the joke in the military is kind of like, thanks for your service. like You know, that kind of rolls off the back you know, or or being a healthcare hero, you know, like that kind of rolls yeah. off the back as well. But um, when someone really says specifically like, hey, this thing you did, this thing specifically, you did it very well and the patient benefited from it. I think that that, that hits differently for people. Yeah.
1: Fantastic pearls. And speaking of pearls, we're going to end the show today with our segment number four on a topic I'm pretty excited about. For this last topic, I want to talk about a procedural pearl that is important to our practice and that's the use of lidocaine and I'm not going to talk about any other anesthetics I just want to talk about lidocaine okay because we could go on a full-out tangent about all the other ones but I feel like when we teach some of our new APPs, we often say, oh yeah, I'm just going to numb this person up and then I'm going to do the procedure. And that's how I do with the procedure. But I think it's important to hone in on the dosing and safe practice here. And it's a reminder for ourselves as well. I always, always ask myself three questions before I use lidocaine or any other anesthetic to repair a laceration. Number one, what is the extent of the injury and do I really need this drug? Two, if I need it, how much am I going to give? How much am I going to use? And number three, has the patient had it before? Okay, always in the back of my mind because some patients don't get great pain relief from lidocaine. And there's some studies that show when bupivacaine and lidocaine go head-to-head, bupivacaine had some benefits over lidocaine. So some patients have better pain relief from bupivacaine over lidocaine at times, and even less medication volume needs to be given to achieve the same anesthetic uh, effects. But it's a longer-acting anesthetic, so consider again point number one. What is the extent of this injury and how much surface area is involved? And weigh your pros and cons then. So let's talk safety about lidocaine and discuss a little bit about the mechanism of action and how it works. Remember, Lido also comes in different forms. And that brings me to point number one again. Can I use a let, right? A topical form of lidocaine to get the anesthetic that I need. And is there, you know, basically a topical formulation I can put on? I can set it, let it, and leave it until I'm ready to do what I need to do. I almost made you spit your water out, right? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) <laughs> I often will use it in combination with an injection to achieve a solid working surface free of pain, but that also requires some calculation and planning. How much have I given? And if there's a small lack on the face that just needs a few sutures, it might be a good idea just to use the lead alone. And honestly, I've had really good results from this. Yeah. Lidocaine, again, it prevents uh, pain by blocking the signals at the nerve endings in the skin and I feel like an infomercial here, but lidocaine comes in so many forms. You should keep it in your arsenal for uh, a variety of ailments and it's nice refresher just to remind you guys of some common procedures we do where lidocaine might make an impact. So remember you can get Lido in a spray, patch, extended release versions, gel, jelly, cream, ointment, lotion, pad, swab, powder, and of course the solution for injection. So let's Mike, talk a little bit about uh, laceration repair and safe uses of lidocaine, specifically local anesthetic system toxicity or LAST. Now, Mike, you brought to my attention a 2018 article in the Journal of Local and Regional Anesthesia. And this is a paper um, from 2018, as I said, but it talks about uh, the the LAST syndrome, this life-threatening adverse event that may occur after the administration of local anesthetic drugs through a variety of routes, not just localized injection, of course. And I feel like I've been talking way too much. Maybe okay. Y'all talk might... about the article. Yeah, I yeah. liked
0: it. So I'll go ahead and throw in here. So, you know, this article, it identifies this pretty recent data that demonstrated the underlying mechanisms of how LAST works. And so it's, It's kind of multifactorial, there's a lot of different cellular effects going on in both the central nervous system and the cardiovascular system. You know, the the journal or the the article authors noted that even though some sort of neurological presentation is most common, last often presents kind of atypically, and one-fifth of these cases present with isolated cardiovascular. Disturbance. There are several risk factors that are associated with the drug used and the administration technique. Now, they suggest that last can be mitigated by targeting the modifiable risk factors, including the use of ultrasound for like a regional anesthetic technique, like a block of some sort, and then restricting drug dose, which was Marsha kind of mentioned here. It's fun to like use as little as you need to. Okay, there have been a lot of significant developments in our understanding of last and how to use these local anesthetics. I really find this topic interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, what's really funny is when I worked and walked into Zuckerberg the other day, lo and behold, what did I see a whiteboard on this topic? I was like, wow, uh, Mike and I were just talking about this. So I took some time, you know, to hit up our local ED pharmacists, uh, what they were saying about this issue. I'll post a picture of the whiteboard, too. So I love that. Uh, bear with me now, okay? Like, deep breath for a second. Mm, we're gonna talk about mathematics, okay? I know you said that. that uh, what did you say earlier? You yeah. were told uh, there wasn't.
0: I w- I was told there'd be no math.
1: <laughs> well, here's some math, okay. and I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna give one little excerpt, and here goes. Okay. Local anesthetic guidelines of lidocaine. One to two percent is a max of four to five milligrams per kilogram, okay? And that's the upper end, four to five milligrams per kilogram. So to put that into perspective, let's say we have a 20 kilo kid. We would never use more than 100 milligrams. For an adult patient to say 70 kilograms, we would never use more than 350 milligrams. To break that down even further, we know that one ml of lidocaine contains of 1% lidocaine contains 10 milligrams of lidocaine, and 2% contains 20 milligrams of lidocaine. So therefore, one would deduce here that a 20-kilo kid would get no more than 10 mLs of 1% lidocaine or 5 mLs of 2% lidocaine. Put that in perspective, right? Okay, numbers here. The 70-kilo adult would get no more than 35 mLs of 1% lidocaine and roughly 17 mLs of 2%. Now, of course, 35 mLs of anything seems like a lot, right? But what about those giant gashes where we have to go in and we start with 8 to 10 mLs? Maybe we need more. We have to be cautious of how much we're giving and what concentration. So that is simply a reminder here. Of course, those numbers are on the higher side of dosing. What we really start to worry about um, are when we're going... Anything more than three to four milligrams per kilogram in either an adult or pediatric patient. So let's talk tox now. Symptoms of progression are as followed for this syndrome of last: they get a little slurred speech and paresthesias, that leads to drowsiness and confusion, and then muscle twitching and seizures, prolonged QRS, and then cardiac arrest. Yikes! So this is not something to fool around with. You know who knew?
0: Right. Well, so let's really get into the pathophys here. So from a neuro perspective, what's happening is this, you have these increasing plasma concentrations of the lidocaine that you kind of injected in there. And that compromises these cortical inhibitory pathways by blockading sodium and sodium channels specifically, and that's also messing with your neuron depolarization. So you, you block those things, and that leads to some excitatory clinical features of sensory and visual changes, muscular activation, and then the seizure activity that Martha mentioned here. As the plasma concentrations keep on rising, excitatory pathways are affected, and so now we have this depressive phase of neurological toxicity with loss of consciousness, coma, respiratory arrest all right from a cardiovascular perspective that's even more complex you're going to have these conduction disturbances myocardial dysfunction and you know very labile peripheral vascular tone i mean you know that we use lidocaine in acls pathways you know so if you absorb enough of it then you definitely can throw off your cardiovascular issues here the primary effects are likely to arise from rhythm disturbances, prolonged QRS, like Martha said, and other effects are kind of more secondary. Uh, normal conduction is thrown off again by this direct sodium channel blockade at the bundle of hiss. You're driving these resting membrane potentials to a more negative level, and so you're having a harder time propagating action potentials. Now you're going to have a prolonged PR, prolonged QRS, prolonged ST interval. So now what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with maybe some sort of reentrant entrant tachyarrhythmias and is like so SVT and stuff like that. And then there's other potassium channel blockades going on. That's gonna mess with your QT interval. So lots of potential badness there. Speaking at the myocardial level, the heart muscle itself, so there's lots of other things going on there. So you've got some calcium channels and your sodium calcium exchange pump those are blockaded and so now we're reducing our intracellular calcium stores and thus diminishing contractility i mean we're talking like sodium calcium potassium like that's that's how your your heart beats is by the movement of these ions so we're hitting all of these things and so we're going to diminish contractility here um you know, if, if your eyes haven't crossed yet, the, the paper goes on to talk more about the neuronal control mechanisms of the baroreceptors that get involved now too, and negative effect on systemic vascular tone here. So you can get really nerdy and really dive deep into this one if you want. And think about this too, right? So let's say you do this and you start seeing the the start of the last in a patient, right? You're seeing some of these things uh, that we talked about as far as your symptoms goes, a little slurred speech, a little paresthesias, you know, then. Understand what's happening is the body has already, it's it's just starting to absorb that lidocaine. And so expect those next things to happen, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and they happen pretty quickly. I actually really loved your explanation there, and the the paper does go into this. But I think sometimes, you know, especially on this podcast, we're kind of like, oh, yeah, like you do this and then you get that. Or, you know, we have, we're talking about something and maybe we don't get so sciencey or nerdy about it, but... This is really fascinating stuff and it really makes you remember what this syndrome is and what it does and the ill effects of it when you know what's happening in the body. Like that's the only reason why I think I retain any information is when I truly understand what's going on at the scientific level. But yeah, the paper also took a look at which patients are more at risk, by the way, which is, we have to think about this. So put the following patients on your radar, extreme age elderly patients who may have a reduced clearance of lidocaine or any other drug for that matter, so renal or hepatic dysfunction. In fact, the paper suggested from their research that they uh, would consider saying use 10 to 20% reduction of your typical safe dose in these patients. So other concerning patients may be, of course, those who are pregnant. Their doses may need to be reduced as well. The paper also suggests that uh, patients who have renal disease, they have a hyperdynamic circulation and reduced clearance of Lido. As a result, free plasma concentrations are largely unchanged, um, and dose reduction is often unnecessary. But again, you should really check the patient, like if they have a big lack And you need to repair this with lidocaine. I mean, first of all, are you consulting a specialty service, but also like maybe running a few labs on this patient for other reasons isn't out of, you know, the wheelhouse. I'm sorry. I'm in like Zuckerberg Sanfran general mode where a patient does come in with a lack, but they're also there for renal failure and they're also there because they're homeless and they're also there because they have a foreign body in their rectum. So like that's all one patient. So sorry, (laughs) I digress.
0: Well, no, I mean, like the, uh, you, you bring up these great points, right? Think about how many old person falls we get, and their skin is so brittle, and they have these massive lacerations, and oh, by the way, they have renal failure, and oh, by the way, they're elderly. And, so yeah, like, this sneaks up on you sometimes, I feel like.
1: Yeah, but there's no old person that comes in where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to repair their laceration with a let, and they're going to go home. Like, it just doesn't happen. But... um Oh, that made me laugh. Anyway, um, of course, patients with cardiac disease, uh, they're at an increased risk of last for all those reasons Mike so gently described. Uh, so take into consideration any other drugs that those patients are on, and they're uh, uh, going to be at greater risk of having complications. Now, it's rare to have this, okay? So this isn't like something you have to be like, oh, crap. I got to go like do a lac repair. I remember Mike and Martha were talking about this syndrome. Like I got to do my calculation. You know what I say to you? Do your calculation. And I put a sample calculation for a dental block in our line on your notes. Which I think it's really useful. Like just see how much lidocaine like you're actually giving a patient. And then you can get real fancy and write down the exact milligram dose that you gave the patient not the ml cuz no one mm. no one gives a crap about the ml i mean yes of course if it's a large volume dose but you you want to know the milligram the actual amount of the med so again this is super rare and the incidence currently estimated to be 0.03% or 0.27 episodes per 1000 peripheral nerve blocks so what's the cure mike right What's the cure? And it is intralipid, 20%, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV push. Per my ED pharmacist, you slam it in. Now, there aren't many drugs we slam in, but intralipid is one of them. So let's say, yes, it's rare, but let's say you have a patient that is getting this, you're concerned, and now you want to treat it, and it's the intralipid. So immediate management, of course, your priority airway breathing circulation, prompt effective airway management is crucial to prevent all these other terrible things that can happen like hypoxia, hypercapnia, acidosis, and of course, all these things can potentiate less. So the airway should be secured all those things you need to be really on these patients quickly and again just kind of a thought about like let's get sciencey here for a minute why is intralipid useful the lipid emulsion therapy may shuttle any toxic anesthetic agent from high blood flow organs such as the heart or their brain to storage or defa detoxification organs, such as the muscles or the liver. So that's essentially how intralipids work. And lipid emulsion therapy may also improve cardiac output and blood pressure, hence further facilitating the shuffling effect. So while, you know, you're protecting the rest of the body here. So this is a great paper with a lot of nuggets that was super short, actually. It was a short paper, but it was sweet and super fun to read. And I highly suggest you check that out. I'm I'm just
0: reading because I've never honestly pushed intralipid on somebody. So I was like looking it up like, what is intralipid? A <laughs> I just told you. Well, I know. But I mean like, so, but like, what does that mean? A lipid emulsion therapy? Like I'm still like, okay, um, in English, it's a fat emulsion. So it's a mixture yeah. of fat with, it's a source of calories and essential fatty acids. So like, could I just like pound a pint of Haagen-Dazs and that's like kind <laughs> of like doing intralipid? I don't know. That's my excuse, I guess, when I eat a bunch of ice cream here. I'm preventing last. I just want to make sure I don't get any last.
1: Yeah, that's what you should tell all your patients when you're discharging them. Like, okay, take uh, ibuprofen if you have pain and also go eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs.
0: There you go. Yeah, it's it's therapeutic and, well, just therapeutic. Yeah, not diagnostic, <laughs> just therapeutic. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that was great. Okay. Well, let's end our podcast today with something sweet. And we started this last episode just a little right at the end, a little something that kind of like help us feel good about our professions here and or just something cool that we saw in the news. So here, here's my cool something sweet. So this is about Crystal Campbell. So Crystal Campbell is an ICU PA. And um, we have a link to the local news segment about her in the show notes. And uh, look, just overlook the uh the talking head talking about how she is a nurse turned magic maker, Thanks. Uh, overlook the apostrophe S used in the Chiron about her. Just feel the story for a second. okay? So an ICUPA in a pandemic. that's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty hard job here. And her teenage daughters entered Crystal into this Disney magic maker contest. It's an award for making a positive impact in their community. And this is a quote from Crystal. And I really love this because it, it, it kind of goes back to patient satisfaction earlier. We we're talking about, you know, like how, you know, how tough it can be to, to translate good care into getting these surveys and getting top box and, or even just translating it into the patient understanding that you care for them because sometimes that's unclear. Like you're trying to do a certain thing for a patient and they came in wanting something else. And so that disconnect can really kind of throw things off. This is Crystal Campbell speaking. People understand two things. They understand love and being accepted. I feel like when you look at a bed and a patient in a room, that's not just a patient. That's not a number. It's someone's mom. It's someone's dad, someone's brother. So I try to focus on those details because details matter. Well, they nominated her for this award, and she won. And so as a recipient of this award, Crystal Campbell and her family are going to receive an all-expenses-paid trip to Disney World as well as a year-long subscription to Disney+, Plus, which I'm loving watching right now. And, you know, more from Crystal to finish that out here. One of the things that's brought tears to my eyes more than anything was that in their eyes, their daughter's eyes, They see me as someone who's not only changed their lives, but the people around them. When you find out that your kids see something in you that they think is honorable and they want to exemplify, that's pretty darn cool. I agree, Crystal.
1: Oh, wow. That was really awesome. That was a nice find. Yeah. I I need more of that kind of stuff in my life, for sure. Nice one, Mike. Well, speaking a little more, I got a little lump in my throat thinking about that that's your thyroid surgery yes my thyroid surgery right (laughs) so i want to point out some other national news that um npr kind of uh threw our way and by the way npr does these great little three minute segments so they write the article but then they also do like the actual verbal uh mini podcast and i think they're so cool i actually forgot about npr for a while and then it came back into my life Um, when dare I say Howard Stern went off the air, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, he's back by the way. Um, I listen for the interviews only. Okay. (laughs) But you know, it's really interesting. I I don't want to digress too much, but he has medical people call into the show all the time. Like Emergency Medicine Doctors and Nurses, which I think is really interesting. So yes, Sirius has tons of great shows. They also have that uh, doctor show. Um, NPR has some great shows. And they were the ones that brought this segment about a nurse practitioner who created a very special do-it-yourself air purifier. Now, this is a gal named Hillary Creech, and she's an emergency nurse practitioner. And she made this special air filter for her husband who was teaching in, in the classroom. So if you go to the website and click on this NPR link that we provided, you can kind of read more about what she did. You can actually build this thing yourself if you wanted to for less than 200 bucks. So this picture this, okay? So she built the air purifier for a room that was 30 feet by 30 feet by 10. And within the entire hour, okay, you will have three air changes, which I thought was really impressive. Like this chick built this for under 200 bucks. She put it in a room and she has three air changes per hour with it. And there's this really detailed drawing of how she made it and like the pieces that she used. And, you know, for years, researchers have been warning us of the dangers of indoor air quality in schools. Studies have shown that actually students do better overall when there's better ventilation in schools. So test scores go up and there are fewer sick days overall. Even before COVID was a thing, this is going to be a thing after COVID if COVID goes away. Well, should I say when it goes away? So for around 150 bucks, you might be able to improve things for students. And experts you know, that look at this really say that a silver lining of the pandemic may be that it has increased awareness of indoor air quality issues in the classroom and kind of brought some new tools to address the problem. And this emergency NP chick, Hillary Creek, we salute you. You got creative, and you got cool, and you did it on a budget. Yo. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, and I just, before we get any angry emails, we know that it was designed by other people, and that Hillary's just one of the many people that is using those plans that someone else created to make this air filter. But it's great, it's great to have an NP featured in something like this. And these are all components that you can get from your your favorite big box hardware store, buying air filters and duct tape and, and a box fan. So. Pretty easy, nothing you have to even send away for, probably. Well, let's shift focus to our two view trivia for the episode. We have an upcoming scheduled boot camp coming up in November in Las Vegas. And get this, are you getting this? If you get this question correct, you will receive a full pass to our course in November. That's right free CME for you, an evening with us in the Diamond Lounge, three and a half days of CME from some of the top educators in emergency medicine. Of course, airfare, hotel, and gelling money is kind of up to you, but the rest of it, free. Okay, so let's talk about first our last week's episode, or our last episode's trivia question. Go ahead, Martha.
1: Okay, so it was a pediatric-themed episode, so we themed it as such, Okay. What year did the TV show Sesame Street first air in the United States, and what color was Oscar the Grouch's fur? And the answer was 1969, and the color was orange, which I didn't know, by the way. (laughs) Bizarre. So the winner goes to Jenny Lewis, PA from Arkansas. Way to go, Jenny.
0: All right, Jenny. All right. Well, this month, we're going to ask you this. During what war—this is a two-part trivia question because we have the two of you here. During what war— were Americans urged to save what kind of food fat so that it could be used in the manufacture of bombs? I love this one, Martha. Okay. i it. So
1: okay. So, okay. It, it
0: combines two of my favorite things, war and fat. This is fantastic.
1: I had, like, all these different... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to try to, like, not laugh too much more. But anyway, when you hear the answer next month, uh, you'll get why I chose it. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so email us your guesses at 2viewcast at gmail.com. That's the number 2viewcast at gmail.com and tell us either who we should send the prize to or if we should send it to you. And, of course, give us your feedback. You can email us at, again, the same address, 2viewcast at gmail.com. Visit our faculty site featuring all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us in November, November 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.
0: And this is the time, right? Because you know our schedules get made up months in advance. So decide today. Come see us. Hang out with us in Vegas here. Hopefully, the Diamond Lounge is open again by then, and we'll hang out. Okay? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for two view emergency that's the number 2 view emergency and it'll come right up on your podcatcher ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some two view goodness like you if you like youtube and want to see the video blog and said you want to see my awesome laminated std guideline summary here search for center for medical education on youtube and you can catch the video version don't forget our website, which you we can go next level, any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's twoview.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
1: Thanks again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at the2View. Have a good day and a great shift.